You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. One thing that might be a sleeper would be a circumstance where the current political troubles in the Middle East, I'm speaking specifically about hostility between Sunni and Shia Islam and the United States and Iran, got worse. I think what you would see would be renewed interest in high-quality oil and gas reserves outside of the Middle East. If that happened, and that's certainly a sleeper, nobody's thinking about it right now. I think in particular the Canadian oil and gas sector, which is really, really broadly hated, would find a bid. Welcome back to another episode of Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to engage the show, feel free to reach me at bill at miningstockeducation.com. And if, like me, you're a passionate junior mining speculator, remember at our website, miningstockeducation.com, you can also access updated hourly the news releases that all of these junior miners issue. Well, joining me today again, once again, is Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings for a conversation about the markets and investing in junior resources. So Rick, welcome back to the show. I was thinking recently that about two years ago when we first met and I did an interview with you at PDAC 2018, you told me that crazy speculators like yourself and Doug Casey need to be in silver stocks. Do you still believe that? I do. Uh, I'm not so sure that in the very, very, very immediate future, that precious metal stocks, including silver stocks, don't need a rest given the incredible run that they've enjoyed in the last four or five months. Uh, But that being said, if you're talking about the whole period of 2020 and 2021, the answer to that is absolutely, absolutely yes. The silver to gold ratio is actually very high still. It's at about 87 to 1 as we speak. When do you expect silver to really begin to outperform gold? I don't know the answer to that uh, in truth. I know that your uh, your listeners always want specific timing, but the truth is that my crystal ball is both cracked and cloudy. Um, experience teaches me that gold moves first uh, and drags the gold stocks along. Uh, silver moves second, although it moves further than gold. Uh, and the silver stocks, particularly the high-quality stocks, move the furthest of all. The reason for that, of course, is the incredible upside volatility that silver has, but more importantly, the scarcity of high-quality silver stocks. There are lots of credible or semi-credible gold mining companies in the world, gold explorers in the world, but the population of silver juniors is much smaller, and that's the that's the reason for the dramatic moves. When... Uh, I don't know, in truth, but certainly history teaches us uh, that when silver does move, the silver stocks will move the furthest of any class. In past bull markets, when you've speculated in silver stocks, was there a general guideline of that silver to gold ratio when you saw it maybe get to 60 to 1 to where that was a sell signal for you? You know, um, I think that's a psychological barrier or a a psychological determinant. I don't actually think the gold to silver ratio is particularly relevant to anything. It talks about the relative abundance or scarcity of each commodity in the Earth's surface, but it doesn't go to the cost of production. Most silver is produced as a byproduct of other metals. So 
its cost to produce relative to gold uh, has a different determinant. It's more a function of silver supply, of uh, pardon me, copper supply or lead supply or zinc supply, as an example. And it also doesn't go to utility. So while I think that perceptions based on the gold-silver ratio uh, are important to speculators, uh, I actually don't think that they are an important determinant of pricing or demand at all. In this uh, gold bull market that we're anticipating, do you have any new investment strategies that you're employing or perhaps old strategies that have a renewed pertinence? Well, certainly for us at Sprott, myself as well as the firm, the strategy that's worked best for us in the last 12 months has been the mergers and acquisitions theme. The uh, precious metals business, the mining business in general, suffers from too much general and administrative expense uh, relative to assets under management or EBIT. And the idea that you can put more assets under management uh, in front of a smaller team and lower GNA is important. Also, of course, increasing amounts of equities trading are becoming passive or machine-driven. And larger companies with a higher asset base and larger share trading volume have higher share prices, and hence uh, a lower cost of capital. Uh, in a capital-intensive business like mining, a lower cost of capital is certainly a durable competitive advantage. The arbitrage that exists in the market between the sort of sub $2 billion or even sub $1 billion single asset producing company and the 5 to $10 billion multi-asset producing company is simply too large to uh, continue to endure. So we see a continuation of the theme of consolidation, and we also see consolidation taking place further down the feeding chain, all of which is a good thing. This has paid us quite well in the last 12 months, and we expect it has at least 24 months to go. A second theme that you see playing in the market uh, has been uh, amalgamation that isn't so much by way of takeover as simple merger. In past markets, Sprott has done very well backing consolidators, be they Clive Johnson with B2 or Ross Beattie with Pan American, companies like that. And we're seeing uh, increasingly uh, fairly decent-sized companies being formed via consolidation. Ross Beattie and all those folks are, of course, doing it with Equinox. Uh, we see Caliber Gold, in effect, spun off of B2, but we're seeing uh, lots of opportunity backing high-quality teams that are good in mergers and acquisitions, but doing it from a different point of view than we have seen it accomplished so far. So that's attractive. History also teaches us that uh, longer in the bull market, when the bull market is longer of tooth, that the favor that you see in the biggest miners in the world begins to extend down into the secondary and tertiary and junior tiers. And I think that we'll certainly see uh, that progression of market interest as this bull market uh, develops and matures. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. 
Orn Resources is a junior exploration company with the appetite of a major, focused on finding the next globally significant discovery to create enormous potential upside for shareholders. It's one of the most aggressive exploration companies pursuing high-grade, scalable gold and copper deposits and has a premier seven-project portfolio including its two flagships, Committee Bay in the Arctic and Sombrero in Peru. With Orin's unparalleled technical team and highly experienced management with a history of success in advancing and monetizing exploration assets, Orin has been called one of the best in the junior exploration sector. Orin trades on the TSX and NYSE under the ticker AUG. To learn more, go to orinresources.com. That's A-U-R-Y-N resources.com. Speaking of the major gold miners, Newmont Gold Corp. Uh, at the end of last year said that they were going to do a $1 billion, that's with a B, share buyback. And then they also just announced recently that they're going to significantly increase its quarterly dividend by 79%. Uh, what do you make of this behavior? I think returning capital to shareholders is probably a good thing. I'm uh, I'm glad that they left room in their budget for about a billion dollars in sustaining capital investments per year, which gives you some hope that they'll be able to continue to distribute cash to shareholders. The concern that one has about all the major miners is their ability to continue to replace uh, production. The major mining companies have real pipeline problems uh, at the exploration stage and at the um, development stage, stage. I suspect difficulties that can only be addressed uh, by merger and acquisition. So certainly I think that where Newmont is right now with no really large projects uh, on the table to develop, the idea that you would distribute some uh, cash, which is surplus to your needs right now, back to your owners is a good thing. But I would also hope that Newmont uh, provides some clarity to investors such as myself uh, as to how they will continue to replace production and EBIT. That's somewhat less clear. This return to ca this return to shareholders that you're seeing now is I think as much a function of the dispositions which they've done, which by the way, I'm wholly supportive of, uh, and is not so much a return of capital from ongoing operations, which is a bit troubling. Do you think that they're making a statement perhaps that they're, the projects that are out there for purchase aren't high enough quality or big enough for them right now in doing this uh, buyback and increasing its dividend? I think that may very well be the case. I think they might be exhibiting uh, M&A discipline, something which was sadly lacking uh, in the last decade. My suspicion is that Newmont will either have to choose to go the Barrick route, which is to say to deliberately shrink and only focus on very large deposits, or they're going to have to lower their acquisition thresholds and look for smaller deposits that generate some synergies with their existing production facilities. Uh, the thing that Newmont has done that's really made a difference from my point of view has been to combine their Nevada operations with Barrick, which 
generates at once uh, operating synergies and also eliminates the duplicate management overhead in the Nevada operations, which was a great, if long overdue, move from both companies. I actually was able a few months ago to go to the Carlin Trend for the first time and went up on a hill and overlooked the Carlin Trend. And so having seen it firsthand, all those many miles of mine back to back to back to back, I totally understand what you mean about the synergies that are present there. Rick, when you uh, look at gold stocks in a recession, I was doing some keyword searches recently, and one of the searches that people were searching for was, uh, how do gold stocks perform in a recession? Uh, What would be your commentary here? Uh, I think they're partially uh, responsive to the policy response to a recession. If uh, a recession was allowed to run its course, which is to say if it resulted in temporary deflation, unemployment, uh, restrictions of demand, restrictions in demand for credit, uh, my suspicion is that gold would be hurt. Uh, my belief is that the policy response will not be that kind of policy response, response however. Um, my suspicion is that the policy response to recession Uh, will be increased liquidity uh, and, uh, you know, increased economic stimulus, false economic stimulus, which I suspect would be very good for gold. It's important to know that uh, precious metals respond uh, primarily to fear. So uh, certainly in certain uh, recessionary environments where fear is really rife, Uh, gold could be expected to do well. But my suspicion is that the determinant of the gold price for the next five years will be largely a response to fears uh, around the ongoing purchasing power of the U.S. dollar and U.S. Treasury securities. Certainly other fiat currencies and other sovereign debt like the Japanese uh, currency and debt and the Eurozone currency and debt will be impacted. But the world's reserve currency remains the U.S. dollar, and the world's benchmark security remains the U.S. 10-year treasury. And to the extent that investors around the world no longer regard U.S. dollar-denominated U.S. sovereign debt, as a really safe asset, I think that gold will do well and perhaps very well. If I recall correctly from things you've said in the past, you view, view gold as insurance more than a, a profit play on an expected downfall. Is that correct? Certainly as a commodity, I regard gold as insurance. I regard gold stocks as an investment, but I regard gold personally as insurance. Outside of gold stocks, are there any other ways that you speculatively try to profit off of an anticipated recession? Uh, I I don't know that I'm looking at gold stocks in the context of a recession. In a recession, what typically works the best is cash uh, or liquidity. There are certainly some instruments that have traditionally been recession-proof, things like utility stocks. The difficulty there has been that the search for yield uh, has made utility stocks relative to their traditional yields, extremely expensive, and I'm not so sure that they will work as well as in uh, recessions uh, as they have in prior recessions. Some of your readers, uh, the ones who are value or deep value oriented, uh, might look 
paradoxically at overcapitalized regional banks who could expect to extend their market share uh, in a recession where other banks had solvency issues, but that might be um, you know, too narrow a focus for most of your listeners. When it comes to utility companies, does it bother you all, at all as a libertarian, you know, the regulated nature uh, that these companies have to endure? It sure does. Uh, there are a whole bunch of things as a libertarian uh, that bother me morally uh, that I can't allow to impact too much on my, prior, on my uh, most important duty, which is to try to make money for my clients. At Sprott, when you're putting together, you know, the big picture for your corporation and how you'll make money and how you'll advise your investors, your clients, uh, how do you incorporate a macro analysis of the economic and political issues that are going on in the world? Well, we certainly believe that all is not right with the world. Uh, we certainly believe that on a global scale, most investors and most taxpayers believe that liquidity, that is cash in the system, is more important than solvency, which is the ability to service the debt that we have all taken on. Sprott is concerned that in democracies, in fact, in most forms of government worldwide, uh, that the political leadership favors spenders over savers, uh, spenders being more numerous than savers. And this idea that we are um, deferring capital investments, which come from savings, in favor of consumption, seems to those of us at Sprott to be unsustainable. We are also concerned, uh, I think, particularly with the U.S. dollar. Uh, and here we're in a strange position. Uh, we think that the U.S. interest rates are closer to real than they are in other jurisdictions, particularly Japan and Europe. So we see the relative strength of the U.S. dollar really being more a function of weakness in other blocks than an underlying strength in the U.S. economy. And one nervousness we have in Sprott is the continued ability of the U.S. society to spend rather than save. Specifically, it's difficult for us at Sprott to understand how you service $20 trillion in on-balance sheet liabilities and $120 trillion pardon me, in off-balance sheet liabilities with the national income, that is taxes and fees, less expenditures, uh, that runs a $1.3 or $1.4 trillion deficit annually. The fact that the um, political class, and in fact most of the voters, seem to believe that you can add a column of negative numbers and come up with a positive sum uh, is certainly troubling for us at Sprott. Uh, I don't think that you would count Sprott uh, among the group that see an immediate crash or an immediate repudi repudiation of the U.S. dollar, uh, what we see is a continuation of trends uh, that supports um, diversification, but diversification particularly into a very under-owned asset class, which is physical precious metals and precious metals miners. We believe as Sprott that we worked very, very, very hard through seven or eight very trying years 
in mining and precious metals mining in particular. Uh, and now we find ourselves in a position where we worked the better part of a decade to be overnight successes. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has an excellent shareholder base with Ross Beattie owning 20%, Insiders 5%, and Resource Capital Funds 8%. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. Are there any sleeper commodities you're looking at in 2020? Perhaps commodities that you're bullish on that are less followed? In 2020, I don't suspect so. Uh, my nervousness, I'm not sure this is viewed, is, this is shared by my colleagues at Sprott, but my nervousness, although I'm not an economist, is that we're in our 10th year of a global economic recovery, however weak. Um, and in my experience, uh, this recovery by historic standards is very, very long of tooth. And if we begin to experience in particular an economic slowdown in the United States uh, or more generally a, a broader global economic slowdown, which one would expect after 10 years of expansion, then demand for most uh, components uh, of a broad economic expansion, including most industrial materials, could be, could be soft. One thing that might be a sleeper would be a circumstance where the current political troubles in the Middle East, I'm speaking specifically about hostility between Sunni and Shia Islam and the United States uh, and Iran, got worse. Uh, I think what you would see would be renewed interest in high-quality oil and gas reserves outside of the Middle East. Uh, if that happened, and that's certainly a sleeper, nobody's thinking about it right now. Uh, I think in particular, the Canadian oil and gas sector, which is really, really broadly hated, would find a bid. Uh, I'm not saying this is going to occur, but what I can tell you is that Canada has uh, a, a sector that has uh, wonderful reserves and resources, also wonderful human resources, and has only been hampered by virtue of the fact that uh, the principal oil producing province, uh, Alberta, until very recently, ironically, had an anti-oil legislature, and arguably the political elites at the national level in Canada are also anti-energy. To the extent that the situation in the Middle East were to deteriorate from here, uh, I think the view around the world of the efficacy of Canadian reserves and resources would increase dramatically. Remember that well more than half of the world's supply of uh, liquid hydrocarbons, uh, oil and liquefied natural gas, flows through the Straits of Hormuz, which is about a 40-mile-wide 
sea corridor between the Sunni uh, Emirates and Saudi Arabia and Shia Iran. And to the extent that the nascent hostilities in the Middle East became active, you could see a, a real repricing of hydrocarbons and a reappreciation for uh, more politically secure hydrocarbons, including prominently Canadian hydrocarbons. Rick, when I was at the Sprott Symposium this last summer, I chatted with a CEO of a Uranium Junior, and he confided in me that he thinks, he's of course bullish on uranium, but he thinks some of the uranium speculators might have too high of an expectation for the next bull up cycle. Uh, Would you share that opinion? I do. I do. Uh, I don't think we have a cir- uh, we have a circumstance where uranium takes up the prior highs uh, at 130 or 140 dollars. Um, I believe that the international energy agency's description of the fully loaded uh, cost to deliver a pound of uranium, including uh, cost of capital, which the producers seldom talk about, and adding back prior year write-downs, which the producers hate to talk about, is in the range between 50 and $60 a pound. And my suspicion is that the uranium price will rise to the point where it's economic for people to produce it. That is, it will increase from 26 or $27 a pound to somewhere between 50 or $60 a pound. May briefly exceed that equilibrium, as commodities often do to the upside. Uh, those numbers would be uh, certainly able to uh, support much, much higher prices for sort of 20 real uranium equities or potential uranium equities worldwide. What interests me in particular about the junior uranium sector is, first of all, the fact that it's totally bombed out. People totally, totally hate it. But secondly, that uh, fairly deep pockets of speculative capital worldwide remember the last uranium bull market. And to the extent that you give those pockets of capital the hope to entertain the probability of a new bull market in uranium, the experience that you would see, uh, the volatility, the upside volatility that you would or at least could see in those micro-capitalization uranium juniors, uh, I think could be pretty dramatic, not like it was the last time. I, I mean, the last time was totally fictional. Remember, the last time in seven years, we went from five uranium juniors to 500 uranium juniors. And I think that's a mistake that won't be repeated again. Rick, I have to confess that after hearing your one cent to uh, 1,000 fold gain in, in uh, some of those <laughs> uranium juniors, when I have allocated money to some uranium juniors, I have taken out my calculator and then multiplied it by 1,000 just to fantasize about what that might uh, end up as. So I totally sympathize with uh, very bullish uranium speculators. Well, certainly I, I hope for some variant of that experience again. I would frankly... Uh, I would frankly be very happy with uh, half that move. 
<laughs> Me too. So uh, as we kind of conclude here, I always like to get your take on how you assess management teams when you're looking at a potential investment in the resource sector. And I was going over my notes. Uh, you monitored a panel at the Sprott Symposium this last summer, the Living Legends panel. And I remember one of the quotes was, we find other people's mistakes and capitalize on them. That's what one of the Living Legends said. So my question for you is, um, when you're analyzing a junior mining company that is not capitalizing and buying somebody else's mistake to try to fix it, but they themselves have made a mistake, and I'm thinking more of a development or a producing company, and it's the same management team trying to rectify the mistake, what do you want to see occurring in order to keep you from abandoning ship? I want to see, first of all, an acknowledgement of the mistakes that they've made. Uh, I want to see mea culpa. What did they do wrong? Um, that's the most important thing, because only the mistakes that you've identified and you own I mean, the only one, the only kind of mistakes that you can correct are ones that you have identified and made yourself. Um, very, very often in press releases, you will see discussions of mistakes that are presented as flaws in the market or flaws in commodities markets or flaws in something else. Um, it is rare that the CEO of a company says that acquisition was really pathologically stupid. Uh, rare also for companies involved in exploration to say that they well, say that they drilled their worst holes first. If if you have an exploration methodology that isn't working, first of all, own your mistake, and tell me about how the data that you had before you made the mistake and the data that you've uh, acquired after you've made your mistake, supports a new and different thesis. Too often, particularly in exploration, if a company raises $10 million to drill, they drill $10 million. Uh, having perhaps killed a project with a $2 million expenditure, uh, rather than try to make something happen with $8 million, uh, they in fact drill themselves into extinction, which is odd, but true. So what about a producing company? There's a company comes in to do their first production. Maybe they just about or almost reach commercial production and then th it just goes a wire. I'm thinking of like a Red Eagle Mining or Rubicon Minerals. Do you think in those cases that those management teams, they've just lost too much credibility to where they could no longer be at the helm and it just needs to be reworked by a different team if it's the same company? Uh, I think very often that's the case, certainly with regards to Red Eagle. Uh, one problem that Red Eagle had was that the mine was so small that it didn't have enough economic robustness to recover, and particularly uh, to recover with the higher cost of capital that would have confronted a management team that had overpromised and underdelivered. In the case of Rubicon, you had a different situation. You had a mine that was financed at a very heady point in time in a good address where there wasn't sufficient data to build a mine. Uh, what was needed there probably was a change of scene too, uh, but the fault was probably equally shared by the management team and by Bay Street 
the willingness that Bay Street had to finance a mine off a preliminary economic assessment with insufficient drilling data to prove up enough reserve to support the plant that was built is as much a statement about the efficacy of the industry as a whole as it is about that management team. Certainly, in order to restart or save that project, you have uh, have the needs for a a skill set in management that is exploration and delineation before production. You have a plant, but you don't have anything to feed it with. (laughs) You have a great place to look for reserves and resources, but you don't have reserves and resources. So different challenges, I think. Rick, as we wrap it up, anything you'd like to share with my listeners about what's going on at Sprott or what you have to offer? Oh, one thing I always like to offer your listeners is uh, my willingness to, on a no-obligations basis, uh, rank and comment on their portfolios. Any of your listeners or subscribers who would like my opinions on their resource portfolios need simply email them to me. Importantly, with the names and symbols in the text, not as an attachment that my uh, security people won't allow me to open. (laughs) And if they email that to me at rankings, R-A-N-K-I-N-G-S, at SprottGlobal.com, I will rank every company that I know of in their portfolio on a 1 to 10 basis, 1 being best, 10 being worst, and comment on them where appropriate and send them back by return email. Excellent. You've been listening to Rick Rule, the president and CEO of Sprott U.S. Holdings. Rick, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment.
This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.